a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, it's a Tuesday and that means it's uh, our weekly visit with Eric Peters from Eric Peters Autos. Eric, how are you today? Well, I'm good. Uh, EVs aren't doing so well, but Tesla's doing quite well. That's good, because I was feeling really bad for Elon Musk. It must be yeah. tough, oh, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, it's fascinating, because, you know, as we've talked about a number of times over the past couple of weeks, uh, EV fever is abating and cooling as the truth about the EVs begins to percolate outward. And a lot of the manufacturers are dialing back on their production of these things because the dealers can't sell them. Um, juxtapose that with uh, the, the most recent earnings statement of Tesla. They uh, managed to uh, they, they bring in almost $2 billion last year, but not by selling EVs. Instead, they got it by selling credits, carbon credits, uh, which other car companies are essentially forced to buy in order to meet their EV production quota. So Tesla's got this really great scam going where they can milk their competition to fund their own business. Uh, and get the the competition to have fewer resources available to compete with Tesla. Isn't it great? I just can't even find words to describe how disgusted I am with the whole carbon credits thing. Yeah, it's. I mean, this this reminds me of the indulgences from the old day. Well, well, for for your money, yes, you can you can sin and we'll forgive you. You know, it's. I don't know. There's just there's something, and there there's a religious tinge to to the whole climate crisis. There is. And uh, not only that, it's, it's of a piece with the, the indulgences from the Middle Ages in that uh, you're talking about people who would commit horrible, depraved acts and then uh, hand over a couple of bucks to the local uh, priest who would grant them the indulgence, go and sin no more. Well, effectively, the same is happening now. You know, we're lectured all the time about how important it is uh, to reduce our carbon footprint, you know, and, and to have less uh, and to pay more. Well, we're being forced to pay more to very rich people who are buying these high-performance, high-luxury electric cars like the ones that Tesla makes. So, you know, it's not even about you can't make the argument that, well, we're, you know, we're doing this because it's necessary to just get climate from changing. And we're just doing the bare minimum we have to do to get the you know, transportation <laughs> to work just a little bit. I mean, it's, it's beyond obnoxious. You remember back in the early 2000s, late 90s, when uh, people would get grief for having gone out and bought a Hummer? Remember the Hummer? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, look how wasteful it is. Look how much gas it uses. Nobody needs a Hummer. Well, who in the world needs a three-ton electric vehicle uh, that does zero to 60 in two seconds? Very true. Very you know, true. So the difference is now the left is, con- is in control of things. And so, you know, everything's upside down now. All of the things that the left pretended that it was opposed to when the left wasn't in control of things – now they're perfectly okay because the left is in control of things. Like, now, you know, the censoring of speech, for example, that's another one. And and this brings us to uh, the, the interview that uh, Tucker Carlson did with Putin. Mm-hmm. Talk about uh, some people upset over free speech or at least uh, mm-hmm. exchange of ideas. Wow. I heard terms like treason and he shouldn't be mm-hmm. allowed to return to the U.S. And I I know you've seen snippets of, of the interview, but I just yep. wanted to get your reaction, Eric. Uh, What's... What did you think? Was it, was it a productive use of time for him to sit down with Putin? Well, what it is, 
it's another example of what's happened now that the left is taking control of things because journalists now are expected by the left, and there are some right people on the right who agree with the left on this, to be ideologues. You know, their, their job is no longer to go out to where the story is and, and cover it and to interview the people who are making the news. Their job is to berate people and to propagandize and to boycott people who are characters in the news if they offend whatever the orthodoxy is. And it's a very interesting thing. There's a historical parallel. I'm writing an article about this. Back in the 1930s, there was a journalist by the name of William L. William L. Shirer, and a lot of the young people who are listening to us may not recognize the name, but he was a famous journalist back in the 30s, and he, end up, he ended up writing uh, a voluminous history of the Third Reich. But anyway, the point is he embedded himself in Berlin, and he interviewed Adolf Hitler and Joseph Goebbels. Does that make him a Nazi? Of course not. He's a journalist. He was going to where the story was and covering it, and that's exactly what Tucker was doing. Did did you have any impressions as far as uh, as Putin? And I'm I'm asking about this with the juxtaposition mm-hmm. of uh, of uh, Joe Biden, who it's pretty clear now, even the press is admitting, isn't exactly uh, playing his A game. Well, yeah, a couple of thoughts come to mind. First of all, obviously, uh, Putin is coherent. He's clearly not senile. He would pass a cognitive test. Uh, so there's no question about that. The second thing is, uh, Putin struck me as a prudent, rational man who is explaining. The Russian point of view. You don't have to necessarily agree with it. You don't have to endorse Putin's policies. But the point is he was explaining why he and the government of Russia have behaved and acted in the manner that they have and made his case. You know, and that's Tucker's job is to give a newsmaker the opportunity to present their case. That's what we used to do in journalism. But apparently that's no longer something you're supposed to do in American journalism. Wow. Yeah, it's it was really interesting, and and I, I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but the the one thing that I have to hand to to Putin is that guy actually seems like he cares about his country, and that's Definitely. not to that's not to say he's one of the saints that walks among us, but um, I get much more of a sense of he is looking out for his country. I don't get that feeling from our leadership. No, I don't. And, you know, I agree with you, and I think you struck a nerve there. I think uh, the real sin here that's on the table is nationalism. And the reason that Putin is considered so opprobrious by the left and also some on the right is the same reason that the same people despise Trump, who also uh, talks in a nationalist manner, talks about the interests of America and the American people and putting them first, which used to be sort of a you know, just a given. You know, you live in a country and you are a citizen of a country and and it's understood that your interests are put forth first ahead of the citizens interest of citizens of other countries. But now we've got this absolutely just disgustingly perverse situation in which uh, the, the people in Ukraine and the people in Israel and Gaza somehow take endless primacy. And also anybody who just scampers across the border, anybody, literally, millions of people can just walk across the border and they're entitled to more than the American citizens who have to pay for it all. Yeah, something doesn't uh, doesn't quite add up. And and uh, since we're speculating a little bit, I noticed you had had written an article about uh, um, you know some of the possibilities. If Biden isn't uh, going to be the uh, Democrat nominee, who then? And you you say there's a, there's well, a likelihood that Big Mike might might be the one. Yeah. Now that's a tongue in cheek reference to Michelle Obama, and it's not my uh, it's not my invention. Obama's brother calls Michelle Big Mike. You know, make of that what you may. <laughs> but the point is, the Democrats have kind of painted themselves into a corner now with uh, Dementia Joe um, because they've got no real options that are any good here. They can't, I don't think, 
kick Kamala Harris to the curb because, after all, that's a black woman. And can you imagine that you right. would cry on the left if the, if the Democrats kicked a black woman to the bus? So it almost is like a de facto requirement that if they do decide to replace Biden, they have got to do it with they've got to replace him with a black woman. Well, who, who, who fits the bill? Who could possibly be that person other than Kamala Harris? And, you know, of course, Michelle Obama comes to mind, and she also has that Obama magic. And there are a lot of people on the Democrat side who would absolutely love to vote for Obama again. So I don't know. I mean, it strikes me as a lot more plausible than them bringing in someone like Gavin Newsom, who is, you know, he's a greaseball, but he's a white man, and he's, you know, he's apparently heterosexual. So I don't think they're going to be able to bring him out, and that doesn't leave anybody that I can see. It's, it's scary, but I've actually got to the point now where I've started to tally up the intersectionality points. Well, let's see. Okay, who's who's got the upper hand? Mm-hmm. Who's more of a victim? And, yeah, it's what, what a crazy world we now live in. But, you know, it's broader than just Joe Biden. I, I drew the parallel with the old Soviet Union, which you and I can remember. And toward the end of the Soviet Union, it was ruled by a gerontocracy. You had these doddering old men who would stand atop Lenin's mausoleum. And, you know, through watery eyes, they would kind of wave half, you know, like listlessly at the the army as it marched past before them. We're at that point right now. I mean, Trump is 77. He'd be 81 at the end of his first term. It's just astounding. It's almost a metaphor for where we are in America. America is old, tired and ossified. And we have old, tired, ossified leadership. No, I I feel it, too. When we come back from our break here in just a few moments, uh, Let's touch on a subject that is going to hit a nerve for a lot of people. And that is driver's licenses. Yep. Um, I don't think about it very much because uh, mine, you know, doesn't expire. Well, actually, I think it does expire this year. Anyway, um, I feel like I always have some time to put it off. But for, for people mm-hmm. who are serious about maintaining not just their freedom, but uh, their actual identity, this is a subject that uh, more people should probably spend some time thinking about and, and maybe yep. even make some tough decisions. I don't know if you can yep. survive in modern society without a driver's license, but I'm almost ready to start trying to figure that out. Crazy stuff. Well, we'll get into that. Yep. Okay. Eric Peters is my guest. Again, there's a link to his website in my show notes, uh, com. You can go to ericpetersautos.com. We've got to take a very quick time out here. We'll pay a couple of bills, and we will continue our conversation just the other side of these messages. is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com is my guest. Let's talk about driver's licenses, Eric. I know that that was a big deal. Yep. It, was, it was actually an exciting thing when I was 16, Anymore, though, I'm starting to feel like it's a leash. <laughs> well, where to begin? Let's start with uh, the fact that it has almost nothing to do anymore except in a perfunctory sense with driving. I mean, with with having demonstrated some ability to competently control the vehicle, I mean. Uh, at one time, that was a whole lot more true than it is now, and it was more analogous to um, what you had to do through to get a private pilot's license. You know, you couldn't just fill out a form. You actually had to show you understood how an airplane works 
and that you could fly one competently before you got the license, right? Well, that's really no longer true. We all know that a driver's license is effectively an ID, and the government now blatantly tells us so. You've probably heard about what they call the real ID in caps. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, and, and what they're doing is essentially requiring states uh, to use biometric identifiers so that they can catalog us. It's got nothing to do with driving. You know, and to understand that, all you have to do is, is realize that if you walk into an airport to board a commercial air flight as a passenger, you have to present your ID, your real ID. And if you don't get a real ID, I think it's by January 2025, uh, you'll be debarred from flying altogether. You will not be permitted to go into secure government buildings, such as courthouses, for example. Um, so, they're, you know, they're essentially trying to corral and, and push and hurt us into getting these national ID cards. Uh, with the you know the fumes, the vaporous fumes of the lingering remembrance of what it once was, i.e., a driver's license. I'd like to see driver's licenses actually, if we're going to have to have them, uh, return to what they were—some sort of demonstrated competence that you're capable of competently operating a motor vehicle. Here, here. Now you mentioned Germany, and and because my son-in-law is is German, and uh, I've had I have two kids now who live in Germany. Um, I understand the driver's license process there is very different than it is here in America. Talk to me about uh, some of the differences there. Well, it's a much more extensive process of training in the first place for a new driver, someone who has never had a license before, uh, to be eligible to take the driving test. And it's an actual driving test. It's a test that probably, I would guess, half to maybe even as many as two-thirds of American drivers would fail, the road test, I mean. Uh, they really expect people to know how to drive, and, 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 and the result of that is that people do, and that is why they have uh, sections of their, their interstate system, which is called the Autobahn, with unlimited speeds, meaning the driver can decide what is the appropriate speed they'd like to drive because they can do it competently and because other drivers understand the rules of the road and they yield and they don't block traffic and they use their mirrors. They maintain situational awareness. American highways have a higher fatality rate than German auto bans do. So that kind of gives the lie to this idea that speed kills. What kills ultimately is incompetence, not speed. Oh, I, I agree 100%. And I didn't think I would. I went When I went to Germany a few years ago, um, I was kind of reluctant when my wife said, oh, we'll rent a car and we'll drive. And I, I was like, oh, I don't really want to do that. Mm-hmm. But after driving for, you know, a few days in, in Germany, I, I had, my observation squares very well with what what you're saying, and that is, they're they're competent, decisive yep. drivers, and I, that doesn't mean you know they're aggressive and bullish or what. They just they pay attention to what they're doing. And boy, when I flew home, that was the first thing I noticed getting back on the highway was like, oh yeah, American yep. drivers. American drivers are very <laughs> oblivious. You know, there's a stereotypical phenomenon of people who will simply sit in the left lane, which is the passing lane. In Germany, every lane except the far right lane is considered a passing lane, and you're only supposed to use those lanes to pass, and then you're supposed to move over. Uh, And that way, you don't have a Porsche bearing down on you at 150 miles an hour that crawls up your tailpipe because you're out of his way by the time he gets there. Yep. And since since I was driving a a lowly Peugeot (laughs) that that wasn't exactly, you know, setting any land speed records, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I I religiously stayed in that right lane and, and, and watched my mirror. And, and look, it's not that I'm a, I'm a fantastic driver, but I just appreciate those who actually have their heads in the game. And I know that's something you have, have preached for a long time, Eric. It's, it's the people who don't pay attention who put the rest of us at risk, not the person with a yep. slightly heavy foot. 
Yeah, probably paying attention is the single most important driver skill there is. And paradoxically, it's the one thing that's being actively discouraged by all the technology that they're putting in cars. It's so frustrating to find on the one hand that we're, you know, we're constantly lectured about distracted driving, you know, and there are laws in most states that prohibit people from using their cell phones while they're driving. At the same time, every new car has a touchscreen built into the dashboard that you're obliged to stare at, use, tap and swipe in order to operate the vehicle systems. And this creates distraction. And, you know, the, the driver uh, is encouraged to be passive and just to sort of stare ahead and, 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 and space out rather than constantly be scanning their mirrors and being involved in the process of driving. And the result is we've got a, a dumbed-down populace of poor drivers, and the solution seems to be let's dumb them down even more. Yeah, I, I don't like the idea of the – I mean, it's great when the car helps me, but uh, but I don't want to get to the point where, you know, it's doing it all for me. And and some of the things exactly. that you've mentioned, like lane assist and um, the automatic, uh, you know, braking, if it perceives a, a, an obstacle in the road – on the one hand, it's great because even, even, you know, pay attention guys like you and me will we'll get distracted from time to time. But as you've mentioned in your test drives, sometimes this brings unintended consequences and, and, and just weird glitches. Well, you know, I'll draw a parallel for you. You know, we've had ABS in cars now for, oh gosh, more than 30 years. Um, and yet tailgating is worse than ever. And I think it's precisely because of ABS, because people are no longer... Uh, cautioned to maintain a following distance with by the knowledge that if they don't and the car ahead suddenly slows, they're probably going to skid right into them. They just assume, oh, I can stop. I've got ABS. And, you know, that sort of phenomenon is, I think, applicable to all of these advanced driver assistance technologies that they're foisting off on people. Well, let's let's hope so. Anything you're seeing that uh, that is giving you a cause for encouragement, Eric? I know there's a lot of crazy stuff happening, um, but from from either EVs to to gas prices to anything else, are you seeing anything that's making you optimistic? Oh yeah, and this is kind of a macro t- a trend, a general trend. You know, on the one hand, it's a little unsettling, and what I'm what I'm going to get into here is the the general uh, falling away of scales from people's eyes the diminishing trust in um, all of these structures that we've grown up with, um, the government structure, corporate structures, all of these things, uh, corporate media, everything. People are beginning to see that uh, it is extremely flawed, very corrupted, and they are beginning to exercise what they should have been exercising for years, their own due diligence. They should be asking questions, and they are. They're wanting answers. They're not buying it anymore. It's getting harder and harder to sell the proverbial used car with motor honey in the engine and sawdust in the transmission. I always thought that was just kind of a a joke, but apparently that's a thing. People would do that. Oh, yeah. You don't remember motor honey? I I wish I'd thought back in the day to buy a bottle of that and just have it on my shelf. It was like this thick junk that looked like honey. And basically, you poured it into the engine, into into an engine that had uh, worn rings uh, or, or, or leaking valves so that to cover up the blue smoke so that somebody who oh. bought it would think that the engine was in good shape. Oh, that's just, that's sad. That's, I'm, surprised, I'm surprised the U.S. government isn't selling it. <laughs> I know. Well, they effectively are. Not only are they selling it, but they're trying to force people to buy it. But I do think people are finally saying you know, we people talk about the high trust society, and we did once have a high trust society where people just assumed in the good intentions of what they were told by authority. That's gone. That's out the window. But that is healthy, I think, at the end of the day. 
Yeah, I would agree. Eric, we're coming up fast here on the end of the uh, segment. Yep. Um, take just a moment. Tell tell our listeners a little bit about your website and what they can expect when they get there. Sure. It's a kind of an eclectic blend of news about uh, what's going on in the car industry, as well as philosophical stuff. We get into motorcycles. We get into history. Uh, we get into humor. We get into the past, and we get into the future. All kinds of fun stuff. So you don't have to be just a gearhead or a car guy. Uh, to find something that you might be interested in over at EP Autos. And you might just find reasons to be optimistic because, you know, crazy as things may look, uh, there's a lot of good stuff that's going on. And Eric, I, I got to say, you're one of the guys who helps me see the good when sometimes it's hard to. Uh, likewise, Brian, you and a strong cup of coffee. There we go. Eric Peters, <laughs> thanks so much. Let's talk again soon. All right. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show, and a quick thank you to my sponsors who make this possible. They include LifesavingFood.com, TMCP Nation, QuiltAndSew.com, and also Ironsight Brewing Company. That's Ironsight bc.com by the way if you go to my website you will find handy links that will take you to each one of these fine sponsors as well as uh, resources for wrong thinkers and well everything else that I can uh, find to share with you that I think is worthwhile speaking of worthwhile got a couple of articles I'd like to share for the uh, latter part of of the program today I want to start with one about uh, well just thinking about some of the ways our world is going to change James Howard Kunstler just pulls no punches, but I love his take in his latest article because he starts with a quote from Tom Luongo, who is, is another one of those writers that I just absolutely appreciate for his ability to tell it like it is and, and get right to the point. Tom Luongo says it's not enough to be against globalism or the World Economic Forum. We also have to be for something better. Now, James Howard Kunstler says, Mr. Luongo makes an important point. And he says, I want you to think about this. There's a reason that the World Economic Forum globalist cabal is losing the battle to control and dominate the rest of us. They're trying to power straight into the opposing currents of reality. And he says, above all, they seek to centralize power and decision making. But the world is moving in the opposite direction. All of the WEF's aims founder on the macro trends unspooling in history. And he gives us some examples here. He says, the rising rule for human affairs now is that anything organized at the giant scale is going to wobble and fall. There will not be any world government run by the creatures of Davos or Brussels or Washington, D.C. or any other place that the grandiose imagine would be their seat of global power. He says, it's not going to happen. So you can stop worrying about it, but... He says, you'd better prepare for what is happening, and that is everything in our world wants to get smaller, slower, finer, and more local. Anything that opposes these trends, well, he says, that's just peeing into the wind. Now, Kunstler says, since every activity we humans practice has to move in that direction, 
who are seeing colossal industries, institutions, and arrangements crack up. Everything from national government to long-distance supply chains to giant retailing outfits to worldwide business networks to overgrown universities and high schools to transport matrices to metroplex cities to mega farms to political parties. So where the rot is probably the greatest but more veiled for the moment is the operations of organized capital, in other words, the banks and money systems, including financial markets. And he says, when these monsters blow, as they must, all the others will shake, rattle, and roll. They have to blow because the fuel tank is emptying. Now, from here, he gets talking about American oil production. And he points out that uh, American oil production may be in an all-time peak now at about 13 million barrels a day. But he also says most of that Roughly 8 million barrels is shale oil, which is a manifestation of our tremendous debt roll-up since 2009. Now that we're at the absolute limits of debt, we're also at the limits of shale oil. And the production of shale oil paralleled the accumulation of all that debt, both in size and rate of increase. And as the debt goes bad, meaning unpayable, the organized capital sector will blow and shale oil production will fall as sharply as it rose. Now, it's also a fact that shale oil is subject to natural limits, that we're out of sweet spots to drill. Okay, so that's America. But he says Europe is way worse because aside from whatever oil is left in the North Sea, which is not much, Europe has no oil. Europe's largest gas field, Groningen in the Netherlands, is scheduled to cease operations in October of this year. Are you serious? You all know what's happened to the Nord Stream pipelines. And then Germany, in some psychotic fugue state, shut down its entire nuclear power industry. Well, France is just not replacing its nuke plants as they age out. So James Howard Kunstler says, Europe is completely screwed. They don't have anything we might call modern industry, but in the meantime, the World Economic Forum is playing them like a flugelhorn, keeping them distracted with green politics, an unchecked immigrant invasion, and sexual confusion. Now, he says a lot of the same nuttery afflicts us in the USA, of course. But none of that alters the real macro trends. For instance, our federal government is not really getting more powerful. It's cracking up, starting from the very top with a mentally incompetent president, the secret that everybody knows. Agencies like the Department of Justice and Homeland Security may seem more tyrannical for the moment. But he says they're actually breaking as institutions because in their lawlessness, they've lost the trust of the people. And nothing is more fundamental to a civilized society than trust in the law. That's what consent of the governed means. So the period of disorderly transition we're in, he says, is not moving towards greater dominance by giants, but to the survival of the small and nimble. Kunstler says we will not see capital formation like the orgy of recent times, rather the vanishing of things falsely presumed to be capital, contraction, not expansion. He says, you'll be struggling to identify and preserve real wealth, which you'll find in unexpected places, like the friends you can count on, your reputation for honesty, your dependability, acquired skills, and your health, physical and psychological. So the World Economic Forum won't be able to impose its globalist nightmare of elite transhumanism and surveilled bug-eating serfs, and they know it now. In fact, he says they're running scared. The vile Yuval Noah Harari has even said so publicly. The political figures and agents serving that cabal will be lucky if they're not hanged in the public squares. 
the political criminals here in America, the hoaxers, the grifters, the seditionists, the lawfare agents, the election fraudsters, know very well the danger of their looming prosecutions. And that's exactly why the Democratic Party and its blob henchmen and flunkies are acting like desperate lunatics. So, Kunstler says, expect failed national governments, maybe even state governments, failed supply lines, failed electrical supply, failed trucking, failed big box stores, failed supermarkets, failed giant companies, failed banks, failed investments, failed money, failed news orgs, failed airlines, failed car dealers, failed hospitals, failed colleges, and much more. But he says, don't discount human ingenuity and resourcefulness, our ability to work around and reinvent systems for daily life, even if it's on a downscaled and more modest level. He says, expect rebuilt local economies from production to wholesale to retail. Expect smaller stores, fewer things to buy, but much of it better quality. Expect a lot less long-distance travel, but a lot more happening in your locality. Expect the rebirth of local culture, theaters, live music, news sheets, dances, to replace all the canned entertainments we're used to. Expect small private academies to rise to replace the shuttered central schools. Expect small local clinics to appear from the ashes of the medical conglomerates. Expect Americans to return to churches as an organizing mechanism for community relations. Expect more formality and less slobbery in public. He says, expect all of us to feel a renewed sense of gratitude for being here instead of rage, resentment, and grievance. Because he says, it's likely there will be far fewer of us around. Now, I'll grant you, that's, that can seem a little bit stark. Yeah, it's, he's, he's, not, uh, he's not trying to sugarcoat this in any way. But does that not, st- does that not sound optimistic, though, still? I'm not going to pretend that this is going to be easy. Oh, it's going to be a piece of cake. Come on, it'll be fun. No, I think I think we're going to see a lot of the institutions that we have believed in and grown up, you know, uh, oh, yes, we pledge allegiance to that one. Um, these things are going to probably come apart. They're going to crumble. And I don't say that to be vindictive, like, good, let it. I mean, it is a relief that all the rot in the, in the federal system It's finally going to come to an end at some point. But, like James Howard Kunstler points out, the stuff we need to be focusing on is building much closer to home. And it's things like relationships, and it's things like developing our skills. And I still think one of the smartest things that a person can do is to start some kind of cottage industry, some kind of mini factory, some kind of at-home business. Now, I realize not everybody feels entrepreneurial. Some people would just rather, you know, collect a paycheck and, you know, every couple of weeks, that's, that's just fine. But if you really want to be free at some level, you're going to have to reach out and embrace that entrepreneurial thinking. You're going to want to create something. And frankly, the opportunity is fast approaching where you might be able to do that with a little less interference and a few less barriers to entry, you know, courtesy of uh, even your local government. So, something to think about. I like the the approach that James Howard Kunstler is making, which, you know, says, you know, there are things that, that actually are another kind of currency. And that would mean, you know, the things like your skills, your health, your dependability, your reputation for honesty, 
those are good things too. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Thanks again for your support and for your encouragement. My goal here is not to, uh, you know, basically give you the play-by-play commentary of what it's like to see Western civilization collapse, okay? it's Look, we're in a fourth turning. We are seeing some historical cycles play out here. But uh, you should understand, we are living in exceptional times, which is, is a little scary because there's some uncertainty. But uh, here's the great part. Living in exceptional times also gives you and me the chance to be exceptional people. I know people say, I want comfort. <laughs> I want things to stay just as happy as they've ever been. I wish it could be that way too. And I spent a good portion of my life trying to make sure things stay just as comfortable and safe as possible. But they don't. The change comes. And, and the quicker we learn to lean into it and to improvise, adapt, and overcome, the better we're going to do. And we're going to do fine in terms of we will find solutions. I, this is the, You're going to hear me get proud here for a second, but... Speaking to my fellow countrymen, this is what makes us Americans, is our ability to improvise and to adapt to impossible circumstances. But we do it. So, chin up, stiff up our lip, pip, pip, cheerio and all that. We're going to do just fine. That doesn't mean we're not going to have to work our guts out, but uh, it, it, we're going to do okay. Just know, I trust you. So, a couple quick items that I want to share. I've got three articles actually I want to touch on here in the final segment. Um, one is from Kimberly Josephson. This is the article of the day, actually. And I, because I'm just seeing this play out in my home state of Idaho right now, they just, I think the, the state Senate just passed a bill saying, well, you know, we're going to require the manufacturers of cell phones to put filters on there to keep kids from seeing porn. And it's, look, it's probably well intended, but it's not a good idea to have government go around, to, you know, involved in censorship or mandating, hey, companies, you're going to do this. As one of our state senators, Brian Lenny, put it, it's like it's like putting a, an orange cone in the middle of the sidewalk. Ah, this will stop them. No, people just walk around it. And it's sad to me, and this is kind of a, a quick aside here, Yes, so the the senators all could agree, we've got to hold these manufacturers responsible for keeping kids away from pornography. But at the same time, they balk, many of them, at the idea of keeping very uh, graphic, sexually graphic and and lurid material away from kids in our libraries. Oh, no, we don't want to do that. Why, you know. So on the one hand, yeah, you know, we want to protect kids online. On the other hand, it's, it's a really bad idea to use government as the agent to protect kids online. Parents? This is where you need to step up. Kimberly Josephson's article actually explains uh, this was this is about government regulating kids' access to social media. And she makes a solid case why it's not a good idea to ask Big Brother, hey, could you make sure my kid's not looking at things that uh, he or she's not supposed to? Bad idea. 
think before you ask for for help that uh, is going to involve, uh, oh, yes, just giving up a few more of your freedoms and a lot more of your tax money. All right, that said, I want to move on to another article here. Um, this is uh, this is from Daisy Luther. She blogs as the Organic Prepper, a fabulous resource for people who are trying to get their feet under them and, you know, find self-sufficiency at whatever level they happen to be. So life isn't slowing down. And very few of us really feel like I have time to do everything that I need to do. In fact, I, I feel like I'm just sprinting from one day to the next to the next. Well, Daisy Luther has sat down and compiled 10 things you can do when you're just too busy to prep. And I like this because this is this is all about just using your time wisely. She says, look, we all have this elevated stress level, right? We're too busy to prep and we have too many things to take care of. We know we should be doing more to be prepared, but there just aren't enough hours in the day to do the things we want to do. Daisy says, sometimes it isn't even that you're too busy. Sometimes motivation just takes a beating because there are so many negative, stressful things going on in the world. So when that happens, she says, the best thing you can do is focus on fitting in small tasks when you can. Try to do one small thing per day to keep your prepper mojo going. And most of all, try not to worry about the things you aren't doing. So she has some suggestions here. I'm just going to run through these real quick. Number one, carry a book with you at all times. Solid advice. You could be learning. If you got some downtime, you could learn. Even bring a Kindle e-reader or something like that. Number two, she says, take the little moments to work on skills. Just work on a skill that would be handy post-disaster. It could be tying knots. It could be knitting or some other kind of small portable task. Number three, she says, add a little to your stockpile each week. Hopefully before you uh, before life got crazy and busy, you had a handle on the weak points in your stockpile. So she says, you know, if you need fruits and vegetables, then you'll pick up uh, some shelf-stable items at the store during your regular shopping to get the fruits and vegetables. If you need some dry milk, she says, order high-quality dry milk online. If you need meat, buy some canned fish at the store or some freeze-dried beef crumbles, whatever. Make consistent purchases and you'll be increasing your stockpile. Just got to do it regularly, like weekly. Number four, she says, make your downtime count. So you want to sit down and watch a movie with the family? Well, maybe she provides a list of survival-themed movies that could be entertaining and enlightening, so grab some popcorn. Number five, family time on the weekend can be used for prepping activities. That could include working on your fitness, working on your nature skills, map reading, whatever. Number six, teach your kids some skills. No matter how busy we are, she says, we still want to spend time with our kids. Try to make it fun instead of something they have to do, but teach them. Teach them how to make homemade jam or whatever. Number seven, organize things into kits. Again, this is a good way to know what you have. Get your cold remedies organized, uh, power outage bag, contagious illness, allergies, bug out bags, important paperwork, evacuation kits. She actually has an article she links to that goes into much more detail. Number eight, she says shop online. Okay, now this is not an excuse. Get out your credit card. Here we go. It's more like I don't have time to trek to the store to shop for preparedness gear and supplies. But if you know what you need, you can shop online and have it delivered right to your door. Amazon.com really does have just about anything you need from camping gear to books to emergency supplies. By the way, 
golden smoked uh, kippered herring fillets. They'll deliver them right to your door. Also makes pretty good food storage. All right. Number nine, put uh, buy food in buckets. When you prep, you're either going to have to spend time or spend money. So if you're short on time, you don't want to have to transfer everything to Mylar bags and buckets on your own. Just order some emergency buckets and put them away with the seal intact. There you go. Number 10, she suggests practice using your emergency food. Again, a great idea. If you actually have to start eating this stuff, you're going to know how to fix it. <laughs> well, I've got tons of wheat. I don't know what to do with it, though. Well, practice uh, cooking out of your food storage. So, anyway, I've got the link here to uh, Daisy's article about uh, what to do, 10 things you can do when you're just too busy to prep. One final article. This one actually left me feeling a little bit uneasy just because it, it acknowledged as a reality that I uh, would be very angry to find myself in. And the, the, it's titled, Sorry, You Can't Have Your Gold. This is from Jeff Thomas, who uh, blogs under International Man. And I'm, I'm going to land on some toes when I say this, but he points out that more and more banks are becoming one of the more risky places to store wealth in any form. So not surprising, uh, then, people are returning to facilities that treat wealth storage the same way that banks did millennia ago. Vault facilities that store your wealth for a fee but engage in no other banking activities. Now, he talks specifically about gold, physical, actual gold. Because it's, it's just so easy in the digital realm for governments to legally freeze or to confiscate your money. You need physical access to your gold. But, he says, there's a consideration here that people have to take into account. And that is uh, select your jurisdiction where you're going to keep that gold. Select a jurisdiction with the best laws and reputation and make sure there's a reputable storage facility in that jurisdiction with a Class 3 vault and a contract that meets your needs. Bottom line is, he's saying, if you have to, store your uh, wealth offshore. In other words, you, you may have to find a, another country. I know he's big on, on uh, becoming international, maybe dual residency or something like that. But do not... Throw it in a safe deposit box. Don't just, you know, take it home and stuff it under the mattress or whatever. But make sure that you've got physical control of some of that wealth. And there's a couple stories he sells about people who wanted to get their hands on their gold and the hoops that they had to jump through. I guess I just go back to the old saying, if it ain't something you can touch, it ain't yours. Kind of a scary thought, but something we probably better start figuring some solutions to. This is The Brian Hyde Show.